No mai haere mai, piki mai, kake mai ngā mihi o te pō. A tēnā tātou, kua whakaraweka mai i rāru i te tūnui o tānei whakapiripiri. Kā kū nui, kā kū rahi, kā kū rangatira, tēnā kaitau kātoa. Nā mihi, kia koe i te rangatira, ko koe te karamatamata o te reo. Nō reira, nā mihi, kia koe mō tō kōrero. So, well, welcome. I, I'm Guy Anispana. Um, my day job is with Radio New Zealand. Um, we're going to talk about rethinking civil justice in Aotearoa and how to make it more accessible. Uh, the civil action has been described as civilization's substitute for vengeance. Um, so these are not your criminal matters. This is the civil arm of the legal system, the concerns often of everyday people, the tribunal disputes over tenancies or or jobs, maybe it's property, maybe it's debt, finance or estate matters. But a major problem that we're going to discuss tonight is access to this arm of the justice system. The cost of achieving outcomes can be very high. Um, so how do we approve access to civil justice in New Zealand? And here to discuss this, welcome to Leo Watson who's with me here on my left, lectures at Otago Faculty of Law, a legal practitioner with over 21 years' experience in Indigenous law. Uh, that's included Treaty of Waitangi claims, Māori Land Court, uh, Compulsory Acquisition, Public Works, Fisheries, uh, IP, uh, Employment and Environmental Law. And so Leo represents a large range of clients in the courts and the tribunals, um, hui, mediation, commercial uh, negotiations. So, tēnā koe. Thank you uh, for joining us here tonight. I'm also joined uh, by Bridget Toy Cronin, who's a director of the University of Otago Legal Issues Centre, uh, Senior Lecturer, uh, Faculty of Law. This is a centre which investigates access to justice, so uh, you're in a good place uh, tonight for us. Thank you for being here. Uh, investigates also the legal profession, judging, uh, dispute resolution and civil procedure. So, Bridget's also interested in the socio-legal research methods and the intersection of civil justice and poverty. So some, some pretty key aspects of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Justice Forrest Miller is also with me. Uh, tēnā koe, welcome to you. Uh, Justice Miller was appointed to the High Court of New Zealand in 2004 to the Court of Appeal in 2013. He was formerly chairman of Chapman Tripp had a commercial litigation practice focused on securities, regulatory and competition law. Uh, he designed and until 2013 managed the earthquake list for the many cases arising from the Christchurch earthquakes and we might talk a little bit about how that kind of model uh, can work in, in our discussion tonight. Uh, incidentally, he was uh, shared the Australian Institute of Judicial Administration Award for Excellence in 2013 uh, for work relating to that and received an honorary doctorate of Law's uh, degree from Otago University this year. So a big round of applause to my guest. And I might start with you, Judge. I do quite like the idea of questioning a judge, I have to say. You may not get an answer. I, I might not like the answer. <laughs> what is civil law? Civil law can be thought of as a service that the state provides to people who have a dispute with someone else that someone else may be another citizen or a corporate or the government. And the state's in the business of doing this because the state controls the power of compulsion, the power to make someone else do something that they'd rather not. Uh, and it delivers that through adjudication. So the traditional concept of civil justice is one where you bring your dispute to a judge, a third party who's independent of you, and that person decides 
if you can't agree. And it's a, a, a broad-ranging thing, civil law. So maybe we should uh, just go around and talk about the aspects of this which interest us, because I know that you're um, interested, Bridget, in, in the tribunals, and that's, that's where a lot of this ends up, right? So talk us through some of those key operations. So, I mean, depending on what kind of civil claim that you've got, you might end up in all sorts of different forum, and um, New Zealand's got a lot of different tribunals, and that's really where the um, mass numbers of, of adjudications or justice happens in our system. So the Tenancy Tribunal, Tenancy Matters, Disputes Tribunals, quite a broad range of things, um, uh, often between a business and a person or two people um, and then you've got motor vehicles um, and you come up the system to um, to the courts after that so once you are out of that you're into the district court um, and where Leo is practicing more would be in the Māori Land Court or the Waitangi Tribunal as well which is um, so we've got this um, kind of plethora of different things that you can go to depending on the type of claim and how much your claim's worth. Mm. It sounds like she threw, threw the uh, Rako <laughs> court it all to, to you my friend so how do you see civil law playing out in your daily life? Oh, I think those those answers are all correct. Um, from my perspective, it is essentially a colonial structure. So from the perspective of a Māori uh, client or a Māori litigant, it's how to access justice in a way that respects and endorses their cultural perspectives. Um, so I think that when we look at the plethora of tribunals and court systems that we've got, we, we are still sitting on an assumption that we're within a Westminster or colonial structure. And that's the exciting thing about tonight for me, is how to unpick that and see if it can be made more accessible for Māori perspectives. So what are the challenges that Māori run into in some of those other non-specialist tribunals, if you like, or um, in, in terms of a cultural perspective? Obviously, you're going to get that in the Māori land court, but perhaps not in those um, other... Uh, tribunals and other forum that we've talked oh, about. Oh, that's right. I think that there is a there is a genuineness and an integrity to the practitioners all the way through the system. Uh, but I think that we would be naive if we didn't think there was basic institutional racism throughout the whole of the civil justice system. We've just had that reported to us in terms of the criminal justice system. And the same conclusions are just as applicable in the civil justice system. So you talk about the challenges. I think the basic challenge would be, does the Maori litigant feel safe, culturally safe, within the civil justice system? And if the answer to that is no, then I think the challenge behoves us to try and find out what to do about it. Mm. How would you respond to that, Judge? Well, it certainly is true that the concept of adjudication of civil justice that we have is drawn from the English system. It certainly is true that it involves a decision maker who's a third party independent of those affected, that's critical to our system, makes the decision for them if they can't agree. It isn't true, though, that the system pays no account of kaupapa Māori. Uh, there are many statutes in which courts are enjoined to do just that, so in the Resource Management Act, for instance. And in my view, I'm a player in the system, obviously, but I believe the courts strive really hard to do that. It's not an answer to Leo's point, which is that essentially you need a whole different model. That's not something the courts in our existing framework are in a position to deliver. Ultimately, that's a political act that Parliament has to do. Parliament would, would have to set up a new tribunal that had those features. What might that look like? I agree with the judge there that, that um, there, is, there are bicultural aspects to our civil system. Uh, and, and certainly there has been great leaps in that regard over, over the years. Um, 
when one looks at a uh, bijural model, if you like, we talk about biculturalism, uh, we do need to go right back to first foundations and establish an understanding of tikanga Māori and how that could inform the way in which we resolve our disputes. Now, um, the, the way in which we start with that is by going back to Māori themselves and allowing that wānanga process, that discussion process, to be founded on their tikanga and then looking at how that interfaces into a current civil justice system so that the two systems can be given uh, equal endorsement. And I think that's the challenge and an exciting one. But I would certainly um, agree that uh, there, both in terms of practitioners and the judges, there have been guide, guides given to us through legislation to increasingly uh, consider and recognise the Māori perspective. Where it falls down, of course, is that's just one perspective balanced against the majoritarian view often expressed by the by the community perspectives. If we take the Resource Management Act, the Māori perspective is one that's balanced uh, in, in light of a range of other perspectives. And so you tend to find that the bicultural assessment of the Māori perspective is taken into account, but very rarely has the influence to actually change the decision. I, I think just picking up on what Leo's saying about, um, which I agree with, the idea that we need to go back to Māori to, to see what it is that, you know, how we could change the system or how we could um, bring those ideas in more. It's also to go to the community at large as well, um, because one of the things that's striking about how our civil justice systems run is that there is a bit of an echo chamber effect between the judiciary and the profession back and forth with very little um, consultation with the broader community about how we would like to see the system run or how responsive that fear um, which might not be cultural unsafety but might be um, a fear of you know the, the power and um, a discomfort with it is also there for people especially for people who are from lower socioeconomic backgrounds who don't have friends who are lawyers who, who aren't familiar with these sorts of systems. We'll return to this, but I, I want to, um, and so this is uh, cultural access in some ways. I, I want to go uh, to um, financial access because this is a real issue. I mean, do we have a user paid system in civil justice today? Yes. <laughs> yes, we I do. Love straight answer. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we do. And it's been brought in over um, a time. I mean, I think one of the features of the civil justice system is it's been. Um, over the last, maybe particularly the last 30 years, but even beyond that, um, has been reconceived as a um, system which is about uh, private dispute resolution or disputes between people, that it's about just sorting out problems between them. So there isn't that bigger regard to the fact that this is actually a system which delivers a public good as well. The tribunals, though, are relatively low cost, aren't they? I think $20 or something for the tenancy tribunal, you've got to file your, um, your application. Um, but then you get into these legal aid issues, and, and at that point, it's very stringent, isn't it? I believe so. I'm not actually familiar with the current criteria for legal aid, but it certainly is true the state has largely got out of the provision of legal services in the civil area. What do you think of that? That's a pretty profound thing to say, isn't it? It's about $25,000 is, is the cut-off point. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bridget, you've done the well, work on for, this. For a sole person. For yeah, a sole person, I think 35000 if you've got a partner, yeah. right? So basically, anything... The, the sort of amount of money you'd get on minimum wage or perhaps uh, a beneficiary kind of level, if you're above that, you don't get any legal aid, right? What, what, what do you think about that? It certainly creates an access to justice problem because people don't come to court who otherwise would. 
uh, it creates problems for the courts because things actually do work more efficiently when you have people who know what they're doing. Uh, lay litigants take a lot of court time to figure out what their problem is, to deal with it. So in some ways you shift costs to other parts of the system by not providing legal aid. But essentially that's not a decision for the courts. All the courts can do is respond to it by trying to make the system as frictionless as possible by trying to reduce the things that cause cost so that, that people can afford some kind of legal assistance, enough to get there. What what are the ramifications and the changes? Because this has happened over the last, well, it was about 2010, wasn't it, that this um, started to happen uh, under Simon Power? I remember it quite well when this legislation went through, and that was specifically the idea, to reduce the expenditure on legal aid, which was considered to be getting out of hand. Um, the what, Legal Services Act, 2011, yeah. Okay, it was out by a year. It was developed before then, of course, and there was a... a a noticeable change, um, and it does have an impact. I, th I think that too. It's not just the beneficiaries um, uh, who who we need to talk about here. There is a there are a group of people who are probably earning um, just above the the beneficiary level and are, and are simply unable to um, access the the court system that might otherwise be available to them. But even for those who do access legal aid, of course, there's an ability to charge back on their properties if they are successful. So the fruits of the proceedings that they might be successful. Um, against somebody else are often then taken up with the state clawing back the costs of the legal aid. Uh, so there's, there are a number of factors uh, there and one thing I'd like to mention around the legal aid is it's not just an impact on the litigant but it's an impact on the quality of service that the practitioner provides. We've seen a noticeable drop off in practitioners who are prepared to undertake legal aid work. And those um, practitioners are needed in the specialist areas. You know, we take something like judicial review in an administrative law context. It's a very specialist jurisdiction in the High Court. And often the litigant is simply unable to pay. But that is beyond uh, uh, them to be able to access the type of specialist advice they need because they're not doing legal aid work. So what would a real-life example look like in that context? Well, the real-life well, real example is that a Māori trust board who are seeking to sue the government for uh, a decision that's been made that affects them and they wish to uh, seek judicial review in that regard cannot access legal aid at all because they are a, essentially a collective and you would need to go through all of the members of that trust board to find if they have the, the personal financial means to be able to support the case. So practically speaking they won't get legal aid. When they do seek access to justice through a legal practitioner if they are unable to pay the, the service of the type of practitioner that they can access is, is noticeably uh, lesser because those who are prepared to do work for less uh, are just not around anymore. And you've seen that in your own study, haven't you, that um, the number of lawyers in the legal aid space have, I think, reduced by more than 50% or something. I mean, they're getting out of it, right? Yes, it, it's dropped off considerably, and some of it's because of the administration costs to be in that system. People just don't want to be in it anymore. Um, there is a push to try and get more practitioners back on board that the New Zealand Bar Association are leading, but it's um, still very low, and uh, so even if you qualify, you might not be able to find a practitioner to take your case. Um, and also I think Leo was saying too is that um, even if you're above that legal aid threshold and you can't get that, doesn't mean you'll have enough money to pay for a lawyer. Um, you know, talking hundreds of dollars an hour when people are earning hundreds of dollars a week. So it just doesn't add up. 
about $300 an hour, something around that um, yep. range. Yeah, uh, in, uh, yeah. there's quite a variability, but yeah, three, three, four hundred, somewhere around there would be. Mm. You're listening to RNZ and an Otago University Symposium recorded at Parliament with me, Guy and Espiner. Today, three experts in the law are thinking anew about how civil justice should be delivered in New Zealand. We're joined by Dr Bridget Toy Cronin, Director of the University of Otago Legal Issues Centre, Justice Forry Miller from the Court of Appeal, and the barrister and solicitor Leo Watson, highly experienced in Indigenous law. It is extraordinary, isn't it? Because you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't uh, pay for access to an MP or a minister, hopefully. Um, <laughs> I'm seeing a, a, a shaking of head <laughs> over here, which is good. Um, but looking at our two other arms of, of, of our system, but you're having to pay here. Or is that being too simplistic? No, it's not. Um, As Bridget said, civil justice is a public good. Um, It's a civilising force, as you put it earlier. It channels that instinct towards looking after your own interests, interests, the vengeance, uh, vengeance was I think your word, into a form of dispute resolution that works. It's a civilising influence. Um, and the judgments that the court produces are a public good because they help everybody organise their affairs according to law. We need them as a community. So, yes, it is um, unfortunate, but as a judge, my answer to that is that it's the world in which we live. All we can do is to try to adapt as best we can. Yeah, no, I accept that, but I want to draw you out a little bit more on the implications of that because you could think of it, oh, I just want mediation, I want it quick, I want it cheap, um, I want it behind closed doors and I want to get on with my life. You're saying there's a greater good at play here that we don't get if these cases um, don't don't go before court. That's correct, uh, and there may be fields in which people have disputes that never actually find their way to court. We don't now see many cases, for instance, involving the standard form agreement for sale and purchase that most New Zealanders will sign at some time in their life for this major transaction of buying a house. Most of us don't read it. but <laughs> No, no, but it's a really important document because it, inf- it affects everybody. Uh, I happen to have one of those cases on at the moment, but it's the first one in the Court of Appeal I've had for quite a long time. Why is that? I think because it's too expensive for people to come to court, is the short answer. And in the High Court, you're looking at, what, six or $7,000 a day, something like that? The major cost is not the fees that the court itself charges, it's the cost of legal services. And there, all that the court can do is try to contain that And there are ways in which court can do that by taking a case right at the outset and triaging it, deciding what are the issues and focusing people on those. And if the case is appropriate for it, sending it off to mediation. Who would do that? It has to be a judge who's got the power to make decisions about how the case is going to be run. So we've got a really good model set up now in Christchurch with this new insurance tribunal which I think exemplifies what I'm talking about. It, it is, it's a development of what we had with the earthquake list. So you, you bring your case, you can file it um, online, 
and a tribunal member looks at that, gets everybody into a room and sorts out what are the issues and how the case is going to be processed. We'll actually go to the person's house to inspect it and guide any experts, you know, because in these cases you do them. You may need surveyors or engineers. Um, and then you have a limited hearing. So what the tribunal is trying to do there is to, is to contain the adversarial process so that you're only fighting about the things you really need to fight about. And the consequence of that should be that it costs less than it would otherwise do if you had an unconstrained adversarial system, the traditional model. With the judge, it's what we used to call the cuckoo clock principle. You, you run your case entirely as you see fit. You come to court and the judge pops out and decides it for you and then goes away again. So this is a model in which the judge, the court, has to control the litigation, not just in the interests of the parties whose case it is, but in the interest of everybody else out there who's waiting to get access to a judge. Do we think that could be a model that could be used more broadly? It's a model that um, has an echo also in the Māori Land Court where there is um, this sort of uh, safe space to uh, work out the issues with the assistance of a judge in a manner that um, can make the, make the case ultimately more efficient. So I think there are models like that. And I do think it's got application more broadly. Um, I'd like to talk about the elephant in the room really as, as, and I can as a practitioner and that is while the courts are doing what it can to make things more efficient I think practitioners have to take a responsibility about their charge out rates and how um, that's been set at a level that is uh, often inaccessible uh, for the for the normal lay uh, for the normal litigant, um, and you know we, we don't pay that much for a dentist or a, or a mechanic or a, or a plumber, and they're providing valuable service uh, to us as well. And I think this is a controversial issue, but we need to deal with to see whether we are actually charging our services at a rate that is uh, making the accessibility question. Uh, harder and harder. And what do you think is the answer to that question that you pose? Well, I think we have to um, consider uh, the the level of service that's been provided, the good that we're doing, and the outcome that somebody who's wanting our services is getting out of it. And often there's quite a disparity uh, amongst those amongst those things. So I um, I'm not sure, and, and Bridget might be able to help me on this, whether there's been much practitioner debate about this. I know that it came up in the context of the legal aid because the charge out rates that are set that are capped for a legal aid practitioner are considerably lower than those that that practitioner would be able to uh, achieve in the market. And there was a complaint about that, and that led to some practitioners deciding they didn't want to be in legal aid anymore. But there's, a, there's quite a, a difference between the legal aid rates and those that the same practitioner would be able to charge the person who wasn't on legal aid. It is the elephant in the room in the sense that um, people don't talk about it. They tend to talk about legal aid and more pro bono and not so much about the price of legal services. So it is an area of work that we've um, started some work on as well. And some of it's about also thinking about like the level of service. Do you need a lawyer for the whole case to do everything or can you just get them for strategic moments to, to you know bring the expertise? So kind of mixing up how we use lawyers rather than you know the, the expert, the person you go to and hand your case over, kind of like medicine back years, you know, more involvement between um, and dialogue between clients and, and lawyers and using them more strategically is probably what well, I think is part of the answer. And access um, to information. We do that in the health system. We're, we're promoting the idea that we as, as clients in the health system, I hate that phrase, but, you know, we were able to access information and challenge and ask for what are our rights. It's, it's happening more in the legal profession, but it's, I think it's gone a long way to go where people feel comfortable to be able to say, you've just 
assessed that it is an estimate of $20,000 for what I'm wanting, uh, can I check how you've reached that figure? Can I perhaps get some competitive quotes that you might do in other professions and be more informed as to whether the service that you're saying you're going to deliver to me as a practitioner is worth it? Well, it's got me thinking about this. Um, <laughs> I mean, is this an area where disruption could happen and you could quite quickly see a lot of these um, services done in a very, very different way? What do you think? Well, there, there is some disruption coming yeah. into the market already. Some things are, are more able to be disrupted, like online wills or those sorts of services. They already exist. You can do that. Is there an Uber version of that? Yeah, there are some pretty yes. cheap wills, New Zealand wills. You can go online. I'm not going to plug the companies, but um, uh, you can, can do those sorts of things. So wills, what else? Yeah, um, or property transactions to a certain extent. You it can carries, do that now? Yeah, it carries risk, of course, because, you know, if... You don't know what you don't know, um, but for simple things that can work. How far do you think that could go? I, I think there's considerable potential to do it. See, what the court really needs from a lawyer is the identification of a claim that the court recognises and the facts that are relevant to allow the court to decide that. And that's a skilled task. The court doesn't really so much, and this is also heresy, need the lawyer for advocacy. Um, there's a famous English judge, he said, if you take 100 cases, 90 of them win themselves. Three are won by advocacy and the rest are lost by it. Um, <laughs> and, but what, where lawyers really do help is in formulating the claim in a way that the court can understand and recognise and deal with. And once the court has the relevant information, I think nine times out of 10, the court will give you the right answer. Um, so it's not a matter of having the most expensive lawyer to deliver the most polished presentation on the day. Courts really are not interested in rhetoric. They just want the salient facts. Now, whether you can deliver that service otherwise than through the traditional model is a really interesting question. I think to some extent you can by using online forms which are populated by asking you a series of questions. So, you know, what's your name, where do you live kind of thing. And, and you answer those questions and then the system, the machine, populates the form giving the court the information that it needs. It sort of does a translation service. Because when people formulate their own claims, they often put a lot of stuff in that they consider salient and miss out the things that really matter to the court. And so there's a risk without the lawyers that you'll get it wrong. This is part of um, a movement that's popped up, mostly in Canada, where we're starting to see online courts and this idea of trying to construct portals where people can interact with them and get their claims out in a way that um, is coherent both to the court and also to the other party. Because, of course, you've got to be credible to the other party so that you convince them that your argument's good and they should definitely settle with you or, or give way to you. Um, the technology's not quite there, but it's certainly something which... Um, has promise, has potential. Um, it's probably unlikely with litigation that you're going to get the same level as, of disruption as in you're very unlikely to be able to take people out of it altogether or expert advice, but you might be able to greatly um, compress the amount of advice that you need or the tasks that you might need them to do. So you not, might not need to have as much. So that legal information idea that um, Leo was talking about as well, good information that's online, good or you know available through people that you can challenge, you can get price transparency, you can shop around, combined with a 
um, a smaller amount of uh, bespoke advice and then good court portals could add up to something I think there is, there, yeah, there is potential to, to unbundle the legal services. The traditional idea is you take your case to the lawyer, they put their name on the record and they run the case from beginning to end. If you've got a lawyer to formulate the claim for you right at the outset and then ran it yourself, you would be a fair part of the way there. You might need legal assistance at other points, particularly when you're preparing the evidence that you have to supply to the court. But it need not be the case that you need a lawyer to do everything. How do you see that playing out in your field? Is that something that you'd be interested in in pursuing or do you think needs to be encouraged? I think in my particular area of law um, it's happening anyway. The, the focus on the ability for a Māori litigant to come to court without the assistance of a lawyer that's that's promoted as, as, a, as a sensible way forward. Uh, it doesn't always work uh, but it, it's certainly doable. I think um, also we, we need to be uh, careful of the fact that we're not dealing with a stable product. You use the example of Uber. Um, the Uber pizza today is the same as the Uber pizza next week whereas in a legal situation you could well have precedent come down in the interim and the portal that you've used and the templates that you've used have materially changed because the law has changed, it's constantly evolving. Couldn't the algorithm update it at the, at the time? <laughs> We're definitely not there yet. <laughs> the algorithm is essentially what you look to for the lawyer. The, before you get to court, you're coming with your dispute, you're testing with the lawyer whether this is uh, worth pursuing or not, what my rights are, what the other piece, person's rights are, and you're hoping that the lawyer has the expertise to be on top of the current law. And that's, I guess, what you're paying for, essentially. I'm not sure that we would be in a position yet to uh, make a robot out of that. Mm. No. It would kind of spoil the uh, TV legal dramas too, wouldn't it? You know, <laughs> suits online just wouldn't quite be the same, probably. Um, I, I guess that, that takes us to, to speed and swiftness of that, which is a big part of, of justice, really. Um, the, the tribunals, your tenancy tribunals, your employment court, there's a motor vehicle one too, there's a number mm. of them. They're pretty swift, aren't they? They are quite swift. Um, so you do you do pick up speed, but when you pick up speed, you often lose other things. Um, so there's always some trade-offs that happen. So one of the things that people might be more or less willing to, willing to trade off on is accuracy of the decision. And when you go really fast and you don't have time to um, present your whole case or whatever it is, um, you know, muster your evidence, then you might lose accuracy in your decision making. And is that a problem in New Zealand? Um, well, potentially. I mean, that's one of the things that the judge was talking about with um, if you're trying to, you ration your procedure, right? So instead of saying you can have the full noise trial, you reduce it down and the judge controls it more. Um, the advantage of that is you speed things up and you make it cheaper. But you might, you are trading off, um, turning over every stone, looking at everything. And the temptation in litigation is always to turn over every stone because what if the smoking gun, to mix the metaphors, is under that one? Yeah, I've um, been there in journalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You keep turning them over and yeah. nothing under them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> are we served pretty well by the tribunals? Your tenancy tribunal, your, um, there's a dispute over um, the, the tenancy Generally, are we pretty well served there? Because I imagine that's a big caseload, um, the Tenancy Tribunal, right? Would it be the biggest of the tribunals? Um, yeah, it is. It well, is. The Disputes Tribunal is similar as well, but they're, they're, they put through a lot of cases. The thing is, is, we don't know a whole lot about what happens in those tribunals. I'm doing some research in the Tenancy Tribunal at the moment. The Disputes Tribunal's never really been researched. As far as looking at accuracies of outcomes versus really? speed, and no, not really. Um, there's a, not a huge amount of... Um, 
empirical work that's done on our courts. So no. when you're saying you're, you're in there, you've been going along to the Tennessee yeah. Tribunal and sitting in there. What do you, that must be Hanging That must out. be pretty interesting, actually. It's very interesting. What do you see? Yeah. What are your experiences? Tell well, us some stories. Well, I mean, you see, you see people's justice problems right there. It's very confronting to see um, power imbalances between parties, between people in really desperate situations often coming in, um, you know, about to be evicted from their home. Um, saying, you know, oh, I need to go down to Wins um, because, you know, I, you know, partner left and that's why the benefit's been cut and that's why. And there's, you know, there's sort of big social problems that you see on display. In the do court. those people, I, I, I don't know much about how that operates, do those people, what assistance do those people have? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that's striking about um, all of our justice system probably and is that the arms of the state are not necessarily very coordinated. So there isn't a wins desk down there at the tenancy tribunal where you can go out and get, you have to then go and make an appointment and then someone's got to drive you to the appointment for them. You know, like it's it's very complicated. So that creates delays in itself as well. And so there is this kind of disconnect between how our justice system Because that was something that um, Fana Water and it wasn't mm. only aimed at Māori communities. It was supposed to be a bit of a template that, you know, others could learn from as well. Are you seeing any of that come through in those sorts of systems where you get a sort of a super navigator, I think they were going to call them or... No, I mean, this is one of the big problems with our justice system is there's no super navigator. Even to practitioners, it can be quite confusing. You know, we've talked about the number of different things that are going on where you go. Um, a lot of our tribunal system, for example, is lawyerless. It was designed to be lawyerless to make it cheap and accessible. But the problem is you then don't have the eyes of the lawyers on that system. They're not putting in law reform submissions. They're not critiquing it. And part of lawyers' roles, I mean, I know they, they get a bad rap, right? But they also do have this role of mm. rule of law. They are, they are monitors on our system. They're between the state and the public. And they're missing from the tribunals. And so you don't have that kind of... Um, Oversight, and they don't necessarily know. Um, and yeah, there is a big problem with lack of kind of coordination in our system. And generally, if you're taking the tenancy example, a super navigator would be fantastic because you might come with a particular uh, issue, but have a plethora of issues that you're needing to deal with. So often, client will hear the adjudicator say, "I'm sorry, I don't have the jurisdiction for that." So the idea of particular boxes in which law sits and certain tribunals can do some things and you'll have to go somewhere else to have that other issue dealt with uh, is very common. Um, if, I, if I again look at the Māori land situation, I can, I can have clients who go to a tenancy tribunal dealing simply with the tenancy agreement between landlord and tenant, but it can, the, the problem at the heart of the dispute is often associated with the machinations of Māori land tenure itself, and that's a completely different jurisdiction. So that's hard for a uh, person who's lawyerless going into a tribunal system to then be able to adequately navigate that. It often depends on the integrity of the adjudicator to have uh, enough empathy and expertise to be able to help that person go to where the particular jurisdiction is that they need to find help. This conversation recorded at Parliament features speakers well qualified to comment on how civil justice should be delivered in this country. We're joined by Dr Bridget Toy Cronin, Director of the University of Otago Legal Issues Centre, Justice Forry Miller from the Court of Appeal, and the Barrister and Solicitor Leo Watson, highly experienced in Indigenous law. I'm Guy Espiner, in the chair for this RNZ recording, made in association with the University of Otago. That leads me to a question I wanted to ask you, uh, Judge. We heard about the imbalance of power that we see sometimes. Is there a temptation 
uh, on your half to, to step in to try to um, address that balance ever? You see two sides, one vastly uh, more strongly represented than the other. Um, what I can say is that as a judge, you're very driven to get the right answer, the just answer in the case. And you must always be neutral as between the parties, but that doesn't mean you can't try to recognise the existence of a power imbalance and ensure that the disadvantaged party is able to put their case. And I believe all judges would try to do that. That must be a fairly fine line, is it? It is a fine line, it, exactly. That's mm. exactly right. And it kind of feeds into that idea about, you know, the judges are trying to get to the right answer, which is one of the, the breaks that we have on this idea of trying to ration procedure mm. or, or make the parties, um, you know, stick within a m more limited fact-finding kind of um, area because, of course, the risk is the judge is going to miss the answer or they're gonna be, there's going to be stuff going on in the background they can't see. Um, and so that makes it very hard for judges to say, OK, right, that's enough, we're done here. Um, We've, we've, we've turned enough stones. Mm. And we talked about timeliness um, in the tribunals, but moving to the, to the district and high courts, uh, Justice Miller, what are the sort of magnitude of cases that we're seeing in there and, and, and how are the timeliness issues there? I have to say I don't know about the district court. They, they get about a little less than 1,000 new defended cases a year. The high court gets about 3,000 and a substantial number of those are uh, claims against the, against the government but about half of them are what we call ordinary civil proceedings, the kind of dispute I talked about before between one person and another. Uh, so the High Court actually sees more although it has a higher jurisdiction um, and that raises a question about what is happening for the district court. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I suspect the judges there would say that they are, their resources are absolutely stretched because of all the criminal work they have to do, the family work. There are so many things they have to do. They, they are unable to deliver on some of the things that you need to offer a credible civil justice system, which the High Court has been able to do. So one of the things the High Court does is have a case management conference early and then it makes a credible commitment to the parties that we will give you a trial on this date. And that date is now I think typically 12 months for a standard civil proceeding from the date of filing. And when you allow for the exercise of process rights like the exchange of claims and defences and disclosure of information, that's a pretty good system. So we do okay comparably to the countries we like to compare ourselves with that process? We do. Uh, we did some work on this some years ago. Uh, High Court gets about 10% of its ordinary civil business to trial, compared to say less than 2% in the US, which we think of as the home of the trial, um, and a similar number on the data I've looked at from the UK. So th that's a sign that although we don't get many cases to court, those that we do get to court, we're managing to process in a way which makes adjudication a viable option. And I believe that's the critical objective of the system. 
because once once people know that trial is viable for them, if they settle, they'll settle by reference to what the judge would do rather than by reference to those power imbalances. Okay, so to flip that around, about 90% of those uh, cases where a claim is made won't actually go to trial. But, but you, you're saying that that's actually a healthy thing. You think that that number's about right? They should settle. In most cases get to court because there's a mismatch of expectations. Someone has got it wrong and that pre-trial process should isolate those issues and bring the parties to a position where they can reach agreement. And you invoke the, the state's power of compulsion by just coming to court, by filing a claim. About 30% of cases settle more or less straight away just because you've said, I'm going to court and you've filed the claim. And that, that is a good thing. That's a low-cost fix, actually. Uh, for those people. And the state has done that by making available that access to a judge. That's why it's so important to be able to say when you file your case, you will actually get a trial in this case. We will deliver you a judge 12 months out, and that's your trial date. And don't expect to adjourn it. That will be your trial date. Uh, That's the model that we've worked with. And I think it has worked in the High Court pretty well. As I say, I just don't know enough about the pattern of civil business in the district court to say anything. Yeah, um, I'm, I think on that, you know, the US having dropped down to 2%, they have the phenomenon of the, the vanishing trial. It's disappearing from their system, even though they're thought of in popular culture to be litigious, they're not. And um, part of it's been that a lot of companies have put in clauses which forces people into private dispute resolution and out of the court system. And that's a real, pro- mm. there's a huge problem for rule of law if you... Uh, you've privatised your dispute resolution system and you're pushing people away from court and saying court's bad, court's expensive, don't go to court. Um, Well, obviously, no one's going to sign up for it unless you have to, but it has to be there. It's got to be credible, it's got to be available, or you you have a really serious democratic problem. Do we have that problem yet? Oh, we do. Um... For all the reasons that have just been given, I I don't want it to sound like we've got a completely broken system because the case management system in the High Court, I think it's been a revelation. Um, I'd be interested to know the figures, uh, Judge, in terms of the Court of Appeal um, and what they are hearing per annum Um, because, of course, with the appellate system, there's a whole set of issues there again in terms of timeliness. Um, The sort of the 12-month to a trial is is a, a, um, a laudable time frame but there would have been a hell of a lot of stuff that's gone on prior to filing in terms of the, the, the litigants talking to each other and trying to settle it. And then, of course, there's the power and balance. Can you take on an appeal? And um, quite often, it's those who have the resources to do so will keep fighting, uh, if only not to get a result necessarily, but to, uh, to, to force the other a party into submission. Um, at a broader level, I, I do think there is, a, and I come back to my earlier comments, a system that is fundamentally skewed, and we have to make sure that our access to court system is safe and culturally appropriate. So there's all those issues that have to be considered as well. I'm going to open it up for questions uh, pretty soon, and we'll have a, a microphone uh, to go around, so uh, sharpen your your, uh, your um, minds on that one. I'd just like to finish, though, with um, some solutions, um, and we have sort of um, weaved in and out of those um, tonight, but um, in terms of what you think some of the major problems are and how we could move to solve them or at least get some way down the path, what do you, what do you think, Bridget? 
Um, well, I mean, I think we, we have gone over some of them already. Um, I, I think we have to recognise that adjudication is important, as the judges said. Put that front and centre as a rule of law and democracy issue and then go out to our community and, and find out more about what people want, what's meaningful for them, and then um, and with expertise from judges and lawyers but not in the echo chamber to, to go broader um, and, and to start feeding more of that into our system, not assuming that as the experts in the system we are expert in the solutions as well. So I do think that's quite a big part of it. Could we raise the monetary limit of the disputes tribunal? I think it's 15 for standard $1,000, but 20000 of the two parties agree that it can be 20000 Should it may, Maybe it should be higher if you were saying that um, they deliver fairly swift. And, um, well, they, they deliver fairly swift something, and we don't really know about the well, quality okay. of it or anything. So I'm very reluctant All to right. say, let's just do it and put more of our system out of the purview of lawyers and, and, and strong rule of law. Um, I mean, it seems like a tidy solution, but I'm very reluctant to do that without really understanding what's happening there and whether that would deliver or whether that just hides some of the problem by raising the, the jurisdiction. Um, so I'm not willing to commit to that one. All right. Yeah. Judge? Solutions? Uh, I agree with Bridget that we need a lot better information about what's actually happening in the system. The, the courts see what they see. Uh, they don't see the scale of the unmet need out there. They don't know why people aren't coming, what stops them from coming. And so, if you like, we're the sort of high priests of the system, but we don't know enough about it to fully design a fix. Uh, you do need a multidisciplinary approach to that. So there is a, there is a real need uh, for much better information about what's happening in the system. Because one thing that is clear is any reforms have to be empirically based. There's a long tradition of people doing, with the best will in the world, what they think is the right outcome without measuring the scale of the problem to begin with or whether their solution fixes it afterwards. And we need to be more professional about that. My turn, is it? Yes. Solutions. Kaya kwaitawa. Um, I will pick three. I think that um, uh, the value of education is critical, and, and I really support um, this symposium. I think for our students, our practitioners, and our and our judges, right the way through in our justice sector generally, um, if the problem is a culturally unsafe system, I would be saying that the solution is around education to assist um, the opening up of perspectives so that our practitioners right the way, our players through the system, are alive to the different uh, perspectives that are being brought to bear in the system. Can I just ask, uh, is te reo Māori used in, um, in court? I'd like to ask all of you guys mm. this. I mean, well, we know, you know it's, it's an official, official language. language, right? Absolutely. And you know, um, um, s sometimes you can even use it on the radio without too much pushback. <laughs> um, but um, how, how does it go in court? Yes, it depends on the jurisdiction. Uh, the Māori Land Court is used frequently, the same with the Waitangi Tribunal. I think it's fair to say that across the other jurisdictions um, it would be uh, uh, very much a rarity uh, for, for a practitioner to either be fluent enough to be able to conduct the case in Māori or to be confident enough to push forward for that right to speak Māori to be um, heard in the court. I can say this, though, that when it's um, requested and respectfully requested, I can't think of an examples where it's been denied. The practicality, though, of translation services and the like come into play. So I've seen a real difference in the amenability 
of the Environment Court, of the High Court indeed, of other jurisdictions to hear and proceed in Te Reo Māori, but we really don't have a system that's, that's uh, set up with the resources to be able to handle that. Have you got a comment on that, Judge? I think that's correct, actually. The courts are very receptive to its use, but very few of us are fluent. Um, we tend to use it in, in for formal purposes, for greetings, uh, for welcoming people, but not otherwise as the language that in which the court works. Just a couple of other things on solutions, though. I, I, um, I talked about the value of education. I think at a legal aid system, we are setting the, the bar uh, far too low and that we need to um, ensure that more people can have access to legal aid and rem remove this idea that it can only be an individual. Many cases that I deal with are taken by a collective and by virtue of that, they are unable to access basic legal aid. Oh, that's that the other thing, because correct me if I'm wrong, you, you, a company yeah. can't get legal yeah, aid, Yeah, right? so small businesses are also from the, from the perspective okay, of Okay, so if I, had a, um, you know, if I had a plumbing business and I had my house mortgaged on that, but I had 50% of the shares or something, I can't get legal aid? It would be much more challenging, yeah. It depends on who's being sued, who the party is. I know, if, people if think company, about companies as some you know, massive Yeah, entity, no, but, but they're often one person oh, behind the company, and, yeah. and if it's the company who's the party, then yeah, Can't you're get out. It. Mm. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Time now for audience questions in this Otago University symposium about how civil justice should be offered by our legal system. Hi, questions for Dr Toy Cronin. Could you expand on your comments about why the privatisation of civil justice is a problem in terms of democracy? Um, <clears throat> well, because if you don't have enough cases coming through the courts and having um, them play out in the court, then you don't get precedent. So you're not testing the law or developing the law because judges aren't just enforcing the law, they're also part of the lawmaking system. So if you strip out too much adjudication, you don't produce precedent, it's part of our system. Um, and then there's also just the um, public airing of what's happening in society doesn't happen very well if everything's behind closed doors. You can't see any of the big structural patterns because it's all behind closed doors. So it's very important to be able to see, for example, you know, payday lenders, if they're bringing, if everything's getting settled behind closed doors, you're not going to notice that there's a big problem. When they come through the court, and the district court's done quite well at this, they can see what's happening and say, hang on. Yes, that's right. You, you don't know what is the quality of outcome in a system where there is no transparency and no appellate pathway. So, uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely fundamental. Mediation, arbitration are great, we should encourage them, but it should always be against a backdrop where adjudication is available and is actually used in enough cases to deliver this public need. Hi, um, I don't know if anyone on the panel has ever viewed an um, a trial in an inquisitorial system, but I was wondering if you thought that maybe moving our system more in that direction might be one way to correct that balance of power and perhaps make trials a bit cheaper? It's, it's certainly part of our system in the sense that some of the tribunals are meant to take that more inquisitorial role, so they lead it. Um, it te it's not it's not a total answer. It might be part of the toolbox sometimes, but it's often 
Um, it's one of those kind of like raise the disputes tribunal limit or make it inquisitorial. It's kind of just switching track rather than really thinking in yes, detail right. about or well, what is it that we're trying to get. Um, so, I mean, part of what the judge was talking about with the judge taking a bigger role in helping the parties develop what's important in the case is kind of inquisitorial. That's moving that way, but it's not signing up to the French system. Mm. All right. Well, thank you um, very much for those questions and thank you to Leo Watson, Bridget Toy Cronin and Justice Forrest Miller for a fascinating discussion. I didn't realise that civil law could be so interesting. So uh, thank you to my guests. Thank you for being a great audience.